Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to welcome shareholders and analysts to Equitable's first quarter 2020 conference call and webcast. Later, we will conduct a Q&A with participating analysts on the call. Before we begin, I'd like to refer you to slide two of the presentation regarding the company's caution regarding forward-looking statements. This presentation and comments may contain forward-looking information, including statements regarding possible future business and growth prospects of the company. You are cautioned that forward-looking statements involve risks and uncertainties, including those introduced by the current global COVID-19 pandemic. Certain material factors or assumptions were applied in making these statements and could cause results or performance to differ from forecasts or projections expressed these statements. Equitable does not undertake to update any forward-looking statements, except in accordance with applicable security laws. This call is being recorded for replay purposes on May 14, 2020, at 10 a.m. Eastern. It is now my pleasure to turn the call over to Mr. Andrew Moore, President and CEO of Equitable Bank. Please proceed, Mr. Moore. Thank you, Amy. Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome. Tim Wilson, Chief Financial Officer of the bank, and Ron Tratch, Chief Risk Officer, are also participating today. While I will deliver our prepared marks, uh, Tim and Ron are available for Q&A. This is an extremely challenging time for Canada and, frankly, the world. Our bank, like others, exists to serve Canadians and the critical role we play in the economy includes supporting them through this pandemic. We're committed to providing that support by living our values as Canada's challenger bank. We'll also balance that commitment with protecting and where possible strengthening the rock solid institutional foundation we've built for customers and shareholders over the decades. Our presentation this quarter will focus on the bank's response to the pandemic, including the steps we've taken to strengthen our liquidity position. I would say our response has been well executed in a very short time and has prepared us for new realities. We also touch on Q1, which was shaping up to be a good quarter for the bank based on solid growth through January and February, on-plan margins, and the expansion of some important challenger bank services. To start, I will acknowledge this is a very fluid situation. As it's a health-driven event, we simply don't know how the pandemic and the lockdown will play out. The duration of COVID-19 will have a significant bearing on the ultimate severity of economic, financial, and social impacts. I can assure you we've not downplayed risk, nor will we. In that regard, we are being transparent about the economic assumptions used to estimate our future expected losses and the broad range of stress tests we run to be comfortable with our capital levels. While we don't know what the future will look like with reasonable certainty, understanding the various scenarios that could unfold allows us to position ourselves to manage through all of them. I will say with confidence that our bank is well positioned because of our branchless business model and purpose-built digital banking capabilities. Simply put, Canada's Challenger Bank is a great place to be in this environment, whether you're a customer, shareholder, or employee. From the outset of the pandemic, the bank has focused its actions across three areas, protecting our employees, serving our customers, and safeguarding our business for the future. I'll address our employee base first. Not to downplay the fabulous work of our IT team, but as a digital bank with a cloud-based digital platform, it was relatively easy to move almost all members of our team to a work-from-home model. 
Our employees accomplished this abrupt transition over just a few days in March with very little disruption to the bank's operations. I'm extremely proud of our team's adaptability and resilience under extraordinary circumstances. Circumstances made more challenging by the simultaneous increase in customer requests for assistance. Having remote access to all of the bank's tools means the people of Equitable remain highly productive for our customers and partners to this day. And this will be the case going forward. We've also reinforced the support system for employees, for example, by introducing new mental health oriented tools to help them cope with the stress that accompanies a health and economic crisis of this nature. For our customers, Canada's Challenger Bank plays an important role providing a safe place to store value, and like other banks, providing capital to the economy that leads to prosperity for all. True, the unprecedented increase in unemployment is putting financial stress on many of our customers. Government programs are stepping in to provide some assistance, but there is no doubt that many Canadians are going to have to draw down on their savings and will need the support of banks to see them through this difficult time. Like many of our banking peers, we are responding by offering some of our customers the opportunity to defer their loan payments if the pandemic has interrupted their employment or source of income. Through the end of April, we deferred mortgage payments for just over 14,500 customers. Clearly, this is a new approach for us that befits the times. The way I think about this is that the deferral itself represents a relatively modest increase in risk. An average LTV of 64%, an interest rate of 4.9%, the LTV on an uninsured mortgage would only increase by 0.8% over three months, or 1.6% over six months of deferrals, assuming house prices don't change. We certainly expect the economy will kick back to life and employment will improve over these timeframes. But nonetheless, we expect higher levels of defaults in the loan book in 2020 than we have historically experienced. Our bank provides assistance to customers in other ways too. EQ Bank, our digital platform, is open 24-7 as a safe and convenient way to bank with superior interest paid on deposits, free interact transfers and bill payments and our new international money transfer service. In Q1, we expanded the service by adding 15 new currencies. I truly believe this is the best service for sending money overseas provided by any Canadian bank. More than 110,000 Canadians now rely on EQ Bank for their banking needs. That's 34,000 more than a year ago. The rate of customer acquisitions increased markedly recently, possibly as people recognize the appeal of our all-digital platform as they bank from home, and also due to the great work of our marketing team. At quarter end, EQ Bank deposits exceeded $2.7 billion, 22% above last year, and are now, are now exceed $2.9 billion. I'm pleased to note that Selen, the international research firm, selected EQ Bank as a 2020 winner of its Model Bank Award for Banking in the Cloud early in, two, in Q2. This shows we are in the top echelon of banks around the world that have demonstrated clear technology innovation and cloud implementation excellence. We've also broadened other key deposit services with the launch of the Equitable U.S. Uh, high interest savings account. This account provides a competitive U.S. dollar cash alternative for customers and is available through our extensive network of independent investment advisors and financial planners. As of April 30th, eligible deposits held by in foreign currencies at CDIC member institutions, such as Equitable Bank, were covered for insurance. Our funding markets have been delivering all the volumes we need to maintain and grow our business, so these introductions really serve a broader purpose 
diversifying our funding sources, and improving the risk profile of the bank. They will also support the bank's long-term growth potential, which we believe is considerable. From the perspective of protecting our institution, we made several moves, including increasing the size of the bank's liquid asset portfolio. Although liquid assets carry have a negative carry, we thought this move was prudent in light of broad economic uncertainty. To be clear, we have not experienced any institution-specific liquidity stress as hold enough liquid assets to protect the bank if stress does materialize. We held approximately 600 more million more of liquid assets at the end of Q1 than we did at the end of Q4. That represents 7.5% of our total assets, up from 5.5% last quarter and 7.3% last year. In the face of the risk posed by COVID-19, we took the additional step of insuring $622 million of mortgages as soon as CMHC expanded its insurance eligibility criteria on March 20th to further bolster our liquidity position. The insurance came into force in the first week of April and created an equivalent amount of additional liquidity. The government of Canada's move to inject liquidity into the banking system certainly give us added comfort with our liquidity position, and we are making use of these government programs. In March, eight of the nine bank members of the TSX Composite Index, including Equitable, made a draw against the Bank of Canada's new standing term liquidity facility. We also plan to increase our use of the expanded Canada Mortgage Bond Program. These actions will first and foremost strengthen our liquidity profile, but they also provide us with funding cost benefits. Overall, we believe we have the liquidity on hand and the tools necessary to manage liquidity successfully through this pandemic. Another critical aspect to protecting the bank and mitigating risks is maintaining a strong capital position. With set one and total capital ratios at the high end of the Canadian industry, we have a good starting point. You will note that the bank's set one ratio of 13.5% was almost flat to the 13.6% reported at December 31st. We expect the bank's set one ratio to increase from here as positive earnings add to our capital base, risk weight asset growth slows, and we ensure single-family mortgages under available CMHC programs. For reference, the mortgage insurance we arranged on $622 million of single-family mortgages in the first week of April caused our set one ratio to immediately improve by 30 basis points to a pro forma 13.8% as we started the second quarter. You will see the benefits of this action flow through in Q2. We have run a battery of stress tests and financial forecasts that suggest our capital ratios will remain within or above our target range throughout the year, even with our most severe economic assumptions that are set out in the MDNA. Last summer, Equitable announced its intention to grow its common share dividend at a rate of between 20% and 25% for each of the next five years. The board has now put these in planned increases on hold because of the regulatory guidance from OSFI to the banking industry as a whole. This guidance indicated that dividend increases and share buybacks of federally regulated financial institutions should be halted for the time being. While I can't tell you when this guidance will change, I will say two things. First, we do not plan on decreasing our dividend. Our low payout ratio, which was 11% last year, means that we have room to maintain our dividend and still build capital organically. Second, we continue to believe that growing dividends is an important element of shareholder value creation, and we will retain the management discipline that will make this possible once the pandemic is behind us. The bottom line is that Equitable is soundly capitalized coming into this pandemic, 
We have taken actions to bolster our position, and we have confidence that our capital is sufficient to get us through the economic challenges ahead. Now turning to Q1 results. We achieved portfolio growth in both our retail and commercial businesses with loans under management ahead 9% over the past year to 31.5 billion. As I said at the outset, Q1 was shaping up to be a good one for the bank with strong productivity and successful service launches. However, estimates of future loan losses related to the economic consequences of COVID-19 had a significant and negative impact on earnings. For the quarter, the bank reported net income of $29.9 million, or $1.70 of EPS, and a return on equity of 8.4%, all on an adjusted basis. For greater clarity, adjusted results still include the full impact of the higher credit loss provisions in the quarter. Looking at PCL, it increased to $35.7 million as we built our credit loss reserves. These balance sheet reserves, which we refer to as our allowances, increased materially in the quarter, reflecting the deteriorating state of the economy. The increase on our allowance, which drove our higher PCLs, related to performing loans, what we call our stage one and stage two allowances. They represent expected future losses on our performing loan portfolio. We model these expected losses based on our current book of business and macroeconomic forecasts. To ensure that our allowances reflect a range of potential outcomes as required by IFRS 9, we modeled five different economic scenarios and used a weighted average of those scenarios to determine the allowance. All of these forecasts were sourced from a recognized third party. In all scenarios, macro forecasts deteriorated significantly, indicating a weakening in the Canadian economy and real estate markets. We've been transparent with our assumptions and their impact on allowances. We have provided the forecast for the key variables in our MDNA, as well as our slide deck, and I'm happy to take any questions you have at the end of our prepared remarks today. There is, of course, a high degree of uncertainty in forecasting at the best of times, and this is not the best of times. What we can say is that by taking into account the range of information we have today, we believe the Q1 allowance we established represents a reasonable estimate of future losses. We know some of our analysts are expressing surprise at the level of provisioning. I think that uh, Table 14 of the MDNA is worthy of close scrutiny. What's shown is, is that if the economic trajectory follows our base case, we are over-reserved to the extent of $9.7 million. On slide 11 of our deck, you'll see allowances for credit losses in each of the past three quarters segmented by retail, commercial, and leasing. While all allowances increased, our leasing business accounted for a disproportionate share of the change. Given the risk-return profile of leasing, we do expect losses in that business to be higher than our mortgage businesses. This reflects the standard leasing industry practice of lending against the full acquisition cost of depreciable assets. From years of superior credit performance, you know we are prudent bankers. We have always applied a rigorous approach to risk management. We lend in major urban centers where employment is diversified and where real estate markets are more liquid. Further, our mortgages are supported by first-claim positions on real estate, and 100% of our leases by first position claims on equipment, meaning that we have hard assets behind virtually every one of our loans and leases. The weighted average LTV on our insured, uninsured residential mortgage portfolio was 64% at the end of Q1, giving us some protection against a combination of higher defaults and a decrease in house prices. As further support of our credit profile, 43% of our loan portfolio is insured, we have listed many other aspects of our approach to risk management on our MDNA, and I encourage you to take the time to read it thoroughly. A couple of highlights are 
The average Beacon score for our residential borrowers is 695, up from 686 two years ago. And small business Beacon scores average 740. Almost all of our uninsured commercial borrowers and a large portion of our lessees have provided us with personal or corporate covenants against their borrowing. All of that said, as always, we adjust our underwriting criteria to manage emerging risk in the market. One tool we have used is to, to, reduce, loan, is to reduce loan to values on new loans across many of our asset types. This may reduce future loan growth and revenue growth, but will uphold the quality of the bank's asset base. As a percentage of total loan assets, net impaired loan balances at March 31st improved at 47 basis points from 49 basis points a year ago. This is indicative of the bank entering the pandemic with a sound loan book. In dollar terms, the increase in impaired loans from Q4 reflected an $8.9 million commercial loan in Manitoba with an LTV of 64% and a $6.6 million increase in impaired equipment leases. We do not expect to realize a, loan on the Manitoba, a loss on the Manitoba loan. We're also pleased that the $39 million impaired loan that we have on a multifamily property in central Vancouver appears to be headed towards a successful resolution in Q2. We are confident that we'll come out whole. Looking to the future, there is much uncertainty, and as noted in our MDNA, we have withdrawn our full year 2020 outlook provided back in February. It's not possible to replace that outlook with a reliable range of asset growth and NAI expectations at the moment. However, it bears noting that we believe our medium-term financial objectives are within reach in the years after we emerge from COVID-19, as we realize our vision as Canada's challenger bank. I know there's a lot of speculation about how our world may change as Canadians pick up new habits during the lockdown. I, for one, am convinced that one byproduct will be accelerated consumer adoption of digital banking and further digitization of financial services. Our award-winning digital capabilities, cloud infrastructure, and ever-broadening assortment of savings vehicles provide us with a great strategic position in that environment. Over the last few weeks, we have seen a fairly dramatic increase in new customers signing up to EQ Bank. I believe the acceleration of digitization of financial services is going to be a positive for us against an otherwise tough backdrop. And this year, we will continue to add digital capabilities through targeted and meaningful investments in innovation and product development. To, to wrap up, the challenges we're all facing as a result of COVID-19 are unprecedented. Here at Equitable, we have moved swiftly to protect our people, our customers, and our institution. We are well prepared for a range of possible and extreme downside scenarios and expect to remain profitable this year. We are a strong bank with a resilient can-do culture and we will continue to be here for our customers and shareholders with an unshakable commitment to bringing better banking to Canadians. I'm grateful to our employees and our board for their incredible efforts to date. I simply can't thank them enough. And on their behalf, I sincerely thank our customers, partners, and shareholders for your ongoing confidence. I'd like to remind you that Ron Tratch, our Chief Risk Officer, and Tim Wilson, our Chief Financial Officer, will join us in the Q&A. With that, Amy, uh, please open the line uh, for questions. At this time, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please proceed to press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, you may press the pound key. Again, that is star, then the number one in order to ask a question. Your first question today comes from the line of Nick Preby of BMO Capital Markets. Please proceed with your question. Okay, good morning. Um, 
may or may not get impaired, but generally our feeling so far, and we, you know, is is that we're, our construction book's in pretty good shape. And Ron, I, again, your team's done a great job in looking at this. Yeah, so the only color I could really add, or I should add to what Andrew has put out is that um, our, our construction portfolio is, is very heavily weighted towards multifamily and condo construction. Uh, and and in, in, in the, with respect to the condos, um, significant pre-sales. So we take very little residual exposure there. Those areas have by and large not been impacted by work stoppages. Um, there may be some slowdowns, but like Andrew said, uh, the, 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 the takeout may be delayed a little bit, but by and large we feel that we've structured this, that portfolio in good times and it should withstand this quite well. In terms of construction projects that have experienced any type of stoppage, whether it was in Quebec or Ontario, it's a very small percentage of the book, less than 10%. And in a lot of those cases, we've gone at a very granular level and have very strong sponsors behind those projects. So we, we feel very confident that uh, any work stoppages would not have a material impact on the performance of that book. And those, okay. those, those projects would span things like self-storage and, and industrial construction, those kinds of things which we feel actually stand up pretty well. Got it. Okay, that's great. Um, and then maybe one for Tim uh, before I requeue. Uh, just with respect to the reserve build in the quarter, um, I think you pointed out that about half of it was related to stage migration. I was wondering if you could just help clarify what triggered that migration uh, and maybe what conditions would be necessary uh, to see a reversal there. Yeah, so that's uh, the right observation, Nick. Um, I would say that stage migration was triggered mainly by the, the drop in the macroeconomic uh, environment and forecast. Um, so two things can trigger the stage, stage migration. One is loan, a loan-specific factor, so a deterioration in a beacon score and so forth. Um, and then the other is the macro picture. It was definitely the macro picture that caused the migration this quarter. We haven't seen material changes at the portfolio level yet, or at the loan level, sorry. Okay, okay, very good. Thanks for taking my questions. Your next question today comes from the line of Jeff Kwan of RBC Capital Markets. Please proceed with your question. Hi, good morning. Um, I just wanted to get some, I guess, color, uh, even at a high level, on, on the expense growth. You talked about, you know, ratcheting that, that back a little bit and just trying to understand how to think about the parts of your expense base that are being ratcheted back. So, for example, um, you know, how much or, or how are you thinking about your marketing advertising expense uh, separately, the strategic investments that you're uh, making to support growth, you know, are, are you kind of still going full bore on that or, or are there certain parts you're, you might defer? And then lastly, um, you know, what I'll call your other base expenses, so don't include those strategic expenses, don't include the marketing advertising. Okay. Uh, thanks for the question, Jeff. Um, so I We'll answer this in two parts. I'll tackle the, the broad piece about expenses and expense growth, and I'll pass it over to Andrew to comment on strategic initiatives. So I think generally on expense growth, what we've said is expect expenses to stay in the zone of Q1 levels for the rest of the year. Um, the reason is that we've pulled back on all our discretionary spending, our use of consultants, um, our spending on travel and entertainment, and so forth. Uh, we've also committed to maintaining the employee base we have, so not engaging in layoffs, but at the same time, uh, we, are, we have uh, put a halt to all our hiring programs for the year. Um, so with that, again, expenses are, should, be, should be relatively flat through the, through the course of the year. 
Um, we did have a lot of discussions internally about strategic initiatives, what to prioritize our, our where and, and how to prioritize our spending, um, given the fact that we are putting a halt to the to the hiring program that we that we had for the year, um, and the fact that we'll have limited resources, the fact that we're more challenged working from home, um, and we we did decide to cut back on on a number of projects, but maintain the focus on the most significant strategic ones, and particularly those that are digitally oriented and customer facing. Um, and with that, I think I'll hand it over to Andrew to talk a, a little bit more on that in detail. Yeah, so um, so we are spending a lot, but we are you know, excited about where EQ Bank can go, as, as probably I, you gathered from my opening comments. Um, you know, I think just to be in this, you know, we just to reinforce, we are the only bank in Canada operating its core processing on the cloud. We, um, and it's tremendous. Our, our customer SAT scores are fantastic in that business. We are seeing, uh, you know, the highest levels of new sign-ups to EQ Bank that we've seen in, in a number of years as we speak. Uh, now, the challenge with spending money on marketing right now is we can't even, uh, you know, run with the stage. The stages are run uh, closed, so we can't actually run uh, develop new advertising. You'll see some new digital um, content in market in the next couple of weeks to try and uh, try and you know even drive customer acquisition, you know, higher. Uh, you know, we, we think our lifetime value of a customer in the, in the EQ Bank is, is over $1,000 per customer. So to the extent that we're um, gaining, you know, I think yesterday we had added more than 250 new customers. To the, to the extent we can keep up that strong cadence there, we think it's going to be a, a real positive for the institution coming out of that. And just generally, we're trying to digitize more of the bank. So things, things like uh, even these deferrals that, we, that uh, Nick raised the question on earlier, you know, we're trying to make that a digital experience so customers can come in and see where their deferral sits and that kind of thing, more self-serve. Having said that, other things will slide. So we're expecting to be in the market with covered bonds in the European issuance in the summer. Clearly, since it's impossible to even go to Europe right now, or certainly very difficult, uh, you know, that project will get pushed probably into next year. And similarly, AIRB, while we're convinced that AIRB is the right route forward for this bank, we have uh, slowed our pace of investment in that project. Uh, you know, we, we still expect to be making really good progress through the end of next year. Uh, our capital ratios would look a lot higher under ARB than they do under current standardized measures. So we want to be measured the same as every other big bank in the country. Uh, but, and so we're committed to the ARB, but that, that project we're investing less this year. So you know, the, kind of the big picture takeaway is the customer facing digitization stuff we continue to invest in and sort of doubling down on not necessarily spending more because it's almost impossible to spend more, and then de-emphasizing some of those longer-term strategic projects that, that are very difficult to execute in this environment. And maybe if I can just add on to your comment there around the AIRB um, and, and I guess, you know, halting it or, or kind of slowing that there, is that driven perhaps a little bit more of just OSFI focusing on other stuff? Because I was just thinking is, what, what that risk reward would be to continue going down that route if it does uh, improve your capital ratios, um, especially if we're in an environment of where there may be at least perceived uh, concerns around your capital levels and perceived, you know, uh, sorry, perceived levels of, you know, whether or not there might need to be a capital raise. Yeah, I mean, we, we certainly, to be clear, we're pretty confident we don't need to have a capital raise, and that's 
one of the key takeaways you should take from this presentation that we will not be forced to, to raise capital at a depressed stock price. And I think that I'm incredibly comfortable saying that, you know, given all, even, even in that worst S4 economic scenario. I do think, it, you know, and Osby wouldn't tell you this, but I, I mean, I think it's entirely reasonable to think that Osby, Osby's team will not be ready at the end of this year to really think about migrating a bank to new ARB standards. Every crisis brings kind of regulatory response, and I think Osby's done a, a commendable job in responding appropriately to help guide the Canadian economy through this crisis. Uh, I think it's unlikely that they will have a lot of people on standby to help deal with an ARB transition uh, at the end of this year. So that's certainly part of our thinking, to align with our regulator that is, as I say, it's not a criticism at all. It's, it's, it's recognizing the reality of the situation we're in. Um, For sure. Yeah, I don't think, frankly, you're going to do do even the kind of the when we stand back from this pandemic, you know, how, how good is how good are the AIB models and actually measuring risk? I think that'll be certainly one of the questions we're all asking on a global basis. Okay, um, on the, the the payment deferrals, just expanding on that, you kind of mentioned it, it aligns with the overall book, but can, can you provide a little bit more specificity around, like, is that you know based on the geographic breakdown where for example Ontario Alberta obviously you've got some exposures elsewhere but it would mimic your geographic exposure but also too is there any color you can provide on kind of the sectors of employment um, where you are seeing the deferrals and also maybe kind of like type of employment out of the word self self-employed I mean Ron if you could yeah so color, but I think I think reality is it, it's none of those things strangely yeah, like, so and the, the, so the statement I made it earlier would, would stand there um, Part of the cross-sections that we did look at were not only business for self versus salary, but then going deeper into the industries in which those people were employed, and even going down to that very low level of granularity, the, the, the same theme held true at this point, that the proportions largely matched the overall composition of those respective subcategories in the portfolio. Thinking about this intellectually, it's a very interesting environment we're in, right? You know, we tend to think of people like airline pilots and dentists as being golden from a credit perspective. You know, very unusual you see this environment where there's you know, large-scale layoffs in these kinds of industries, whereas other people like landscapers that you wouldn't generally review as being a little bit, um, you know, certainly relying on individual contracts and that kind of thing, you know, they're able to be back to work and, and, and perhaps will stand up better than some others. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting scenario that we're in. So if I understand the, the response, right, I'm just tossing out a number here, but let, let's say you had restaurant workers that are, you know, 5% of the portfolio. Are you saying that 5% of the deferrals or, or, or thereabouts would be coming, uh, the deferrals would be coming from that sector? Exactly. The, the restaurant worker would fall into a class of employment called services, and that would be the, the, the lowest subcategory we can go to where, where that would capture that. And, and yes, that the composition of the, the percentage of, of that services group in the deferrals matches the percentage of the services group in the overall portfolio. Okay, and if I can just ask one last question. Um, just if you can talk about the visibility you would have on your residential mortgage book uh, from borrowers that may have taken out additional debt, whether or not it's a second or even a third mortgage or a HELOC um, that would be included kind of in their overall household debts, that, you know, kind of secured to the property. Um, we, we certainly haven't done that analysis recently, um, uh, and I, I think the last time I recall doing it, um, probably is a, is a good reminder. We should probably go and do it again. But um, I think less than less than certainly less than ten percent. I believe less than five percent had second second liens behind us on the, in the single family book. 
Okay. Thank you. Your next question today comes from the line of Graham Writing of TD Securities. Please proceed with your question. Hi, good morning. On the the deferral side, so uh, appreciate the number that you gave us, 17.9% of your loans are in deferral. Can you give us an idea of what percentage of your residential mortgage portfolio is deferred? Yeah, so I mean, we can break that down actually between alt and prime too. So uh, uh, 24% of our single family book is is deferred. Um, it's roughly 13% in prime and about 30% in the alt book is other numbers. Okay, great. And uh, how about... And, I mean, not, not, by the way, just, just what, probably what is important is to understand is it's not moving very fast right now. Like we sort of got to those numbers a few weeks ago and it's not changing very much at this point. Yeah. Uh, that is important. Okay, appreciate that. And the commercial and the equipment leases, are there any notable deferrals on, the, on that side? Yeah, they're running at about the same as the old books. They're running about 30% on the equipment side. Now, there's a slight difference on the equipment. There are some payments being made on equipment, so less than the full amount, but almost all of those lessees, almost all of those lessees are making uh, some kind of payment, but, but getting payment relief. Andrew, perhaps we could note that the, the large ticket commercial book does not fall along at those percentages. The, 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 our large commercial business has been, it's been very slow to develop. We've got very few deferral requests in our large ticket business. Um, you know, and it could just be a factor that those take longer to develop as this thing goes on, but, but it's very low. So those, the, the percentages at 30% are not true for our commercial business. Yeah, in the commercial, by the way, if somebody's got a larger loan, say a 5 or $10 million loan, um, you don't just call in and get a deferral. That that will be very much a kind of case by case. Is the deferral going to get us to the right answer? That's that's not it. That's a much different, a much more analytical approach on our, our front. But frankly, we haven't had that many deferral requests even in the larger book. Right. Okay. Understood. Um, your guidance on the uh, provisioning for credit losses for the remainder of the year. I just want to make sure I understand the message correctly. But if the base case forecasts remain close to where they are today, then PCLs for the remainder of the year will be up on a year-over-year basis, but below the large provisions that you took this quarter. Is that right? Way below. Yeah, I mean, much more in line with what you've seen from us historically. So when you think about about what should happen if if, um, we follow, what's going to happen is presumably some of these stage two loans now move into stage three. We actually take the provision, but then the stage two provisioning comes down as those turn into real losses and the forecast, you know, the, the worst quarters of the forecast then start to roll off. That's the way the logic should prevail. So, um, you know, I think JP Morgan is actually a pretty good analogy for this. They, they, when they reported, they reported a certain set of losses and said the next quarter was going to be worse because the economic forecast had actually deteriorated between the time that they reported and the time, uh, so the time they ran the numbers and the time they reported. And so really what you could look at and say is those scenarios that we're, laid out in the MDNA, are those scenarios getting worse? And if they get worse, then we'll be taking more provisions. If they get better, then we'll be, we'll actually be able to be reversing provisions. That's the way the math works. And is, is the employment rate really the, the, the most important metric to be tracking, the unemployment rate? Well, HPI is very important too uh, for us. And I think it's, it's interesting, you know, we don't have our own economists on staff, so we rely on this reputable third party and I think, actually, I got your uh, TD's HBI forecast, and I think Jeff Kwan's team at the Royals, 
you'll see the HPI forecast that we're using in our projections are quite a bit more negative than the larger institutions are projecting. And I think, frankly, worse than I would believe a lot the likely outcome. Now, we, we don't fiddle with those numbers. You know, we're not, we're, we, we think we know a fair bit about housing economists, but, economics, but we, we tend to rely on this third-party provider. So I'd be actually a little more optimistic around HPI than, than currently is in those, in those forecasts. But, but we, we respect the economic outlook of our third-party data provider, and we'll, we'll live with those. It'd be interesting if you laid up, if you lay out the, um, you know, you know your own internal economists' view of HPI and ours. There, I think you'll see that we're quite a bit more um, conservative in that projection to arrive to, to, to generate these loan losses. Right. Okay. That is helpful. And then my last question, just on the liquidity front. Um, why are you increasing liquidity through this period uh, when you're presumably going to move into uh, lower mortgage activity? Is it is it related to the deferrals or a desire to build capital, or is it just you know risk management to hold higher liquidity during this uncertain time? Yeah, it's it's just it's that last last thing. You know, I think bankers are always concerned about liquidity. Like it's uh, you know you worry about. And three things I try to lay out. You worry about the quality of your, your assets and your loan book. You, you, you worry about your capital base, you're standing on really strong foundations. And then you worry about liquidity to make sure that you, you know, the bank is able to settle all of its obligations. And, uh, I would say that we're you know, bulletproof on liquidity and, and, and capital at this point, at least as far as I believe it, having you know, looked at it all very carefully. Uh, and you know, clearly the credit, the credit quality of the loan book is going to be we set out the stall really well, but you know, the economic, economics is catching you know, is going to hurt large parts of the economy, and with that, that will hurt some of our borrowers for sure. Well, that's it for me. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. And again, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. You may press the pound key to remove your question. Your next question comes from the line of Jamie Gloyne of National Bank Financial. Your line is open. Yeah, thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, first question is uh, is on the Bennington portfolio uh, from the disclosures that uh, the, the losses that were taken in this quarter, uh, primarily related to pre-COVID impacts. Can you give us a bit more color as to what was uh, what was occurring? Uh, maybe which industries those uh, provisions apply to um, pre-COVID? Yeah, uh, so Jamie, it's Tim. Uh, we did see those the impairment rates in that portfolio move up slightly in in the first quarter from Q4. Um, part of a, an ongoing trend where it was just you saw it, if you look at our supplementary pack a slow migration. Um, we're not uncomfortable with that, as we mentioned before. We price for for that type of risk. Um, where those impairments were actually happening was you know, across the country, across a range of industries. Um, there wasn't one particular or even a few areas of concern that we had. Um, it, was, it was just more a general increase. Okay, and uh, so in, in terms of the post-COVID then, I think I heard that, you, uh, that there's 30% of, the, of that portfolio is on a uh, reduced payment, I guess not necessarily deferred, but reduced payment platform. Um, and just to confirm, like, there's, that's not uh, the, the industry breakdown within the Bennington portfolio, you would have similar commentaries 
around the broader portfolio that, for example, retail, restaurants, hospitality isn't contributing an exceedingly uh, high amount to that number? Or is it different in this portfolio? So what we would tell you today, uh, it, is, it is largely representative of a cross-section of the portfolio. We do fully expect in that business, uh, in the leasing business, as the effects of COVID you know, are unwound with respect to restrictions, that we would see a disproportionate share in the, the food and ser- food services uh, portion of that portfolio, and, and, and less so with respect to transportation when things get up and running. Uh, but given this stage of the pandemic, it, those, those variances of proportion haven't been observed. Okay. A big, chunk, a big, chunk, a big chunk of that portfolio, by the way, is, is in transportation equipment. So it's um, long haul trucks, uh, local transportation, so dump trucks and that kind of thing. Um, one of the things that's impacting long haul uh, transportation is just kind of the slowdown of supply chains, difficulty of getting trucks back and forth across the border, um, are causing some, you know, some trucks to be sitting parked. Right. And uh, Tim, just going back to your comment about pricing for, for this risk, um, yeah, I think the original guidance on the acquisition was loss rates in the one and a half to two percent range. Um, you know, now with allowances uh, approaching five percent uh, on the overall portfolio, I'm just wondering how that uh, type of variance plays into how you're pricing the uh, the portfolio previously and today, and what kind of returns you would be generating uh, given this uh, level of allowances. So you're you're right, James. That the guidance we did provide was one and a half to two percent through the cycle. Um, so you know we're still. I mean. An event like COVID, which we didn't expect at the time that, that the acquisition was announced, um, might take that up to the to the top end of the range, uh, maybe even a little bit into the to the low two percent over over a longer term period. Um, but even at those higher rates of loss, um, when you look at the margins we generate on the on the business, it is still profitable, with the exception of obviously the the current period. Don't forget, James, that we're on stage two, we're using lifetime losses, right? So which extend beyond the 12 months. So you, it's uh, may not sound logical that 5% right. might translate into a into a loss in the low twos on an annualized basis. But that's that's kind of the math unwinding that you're not you're not no longer going to turn losses at all in the first year. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. And uh, last one on Bennington. Then, uh, given that a lot of this was related to pre-COVID, should we expect? Um, maybe not you know, 13% provision rates, but something significantly above uh, above what we we're used to seeing uh, as COVID impacts uh, flow through in, in the next quarter. Or do you feel like you've taken enough of uh, provision as you have in the uh, with the rest of the equitable portfolio that we we shouldn't see that? Yeah, I think Jamie should expect the same philosophy, whether it's spending, whether it's a leasing asset or a, or a, a real estate asset. I, uh, just in terms of the kind of our modeling capability in Bennington as well, it's uh, it's a little more challenging than, than our real real estate. Uh, so I, I think we've probably been towards uh, my own feeling, and I, you know, you put these numbers together with with a degree of caution and trying to do your best estimates, as we've probably been erring towards the more conservative side on the leasing portfolio, given given that uncertainty. Okay, great. Um, shifting to the net interest margin, then. Um, can you, can you 
give us a little bit of uh, color around uh, how lower GIC rates this year are feeding into uh, deposit costs? Maybe that's all being offset by the EQ Bank deposit rates, um, but the, maybe just discuss a little bit of the push and pull on what you're seeing from deposit funding, and uh, and also where you're seeing the uh, the securitization uh, funding costs trend, uh, given some of the dislocations there. So I think Jane, we're we're happy with where we see with where we see margins at the moment. Um, GIC costs did come off after escalating a bit in Q1. They did come off towards the end of the quarter, um, and they are you know working in our favor at the moment. Um, mortgage rates have not moved from a from an overall mortgage uh, top line yield perspective haven't changed much. So we're benefiting from the from the downdraft in funding costs. Um, and margins have been moving up in, in recent weeks. Um, and that applies to both the securitized uh, portfolio and the, and the uh, unsecuritized portfolio. So how long that will last, we don't know. Um, but we're definitely enjoying uh, slightly elevated margins at the moment. Okay, great. And uh, um, in terms of, and I apologize if this was covered in the initial remarks, but uh, some commentary around how uh, application volumes are trending in uh, in the six weeks here, April, April and May, post uh, uh, post Q1. It's a bit of a in terms of mortgage applications. I assume we're talking about because we've, as we've mm-hmm. yes. EQBank is hitting kind of record volumes. But um, so on the mortgage application, I think it's it's a bit of a story of two worlds. We're seeing really strong volumes in our prime business and good margins. Um, and in our alt business, uh, we've certainly seen uh, you know, lower flows in, in recent weeks. Um, clearly, you know, we need to get some more activity in the real estate markets um, you know, with open houses closed and you know, a number of things making it quite difficult to buy a house as well as the economic uncertainty. So I think we, you know, the, the, the fact that the, the reality of the health crisis where you can't actually go and walk into a house to see whether you want to buy it unless the house is already vacant, clearly limits activity pretty significantly. And that's what we're monitoring really closely. When do we see the housing market start to move in, a, in, a, in greater volumes uh, where we've got true price discovery on, on house prices as well as, as more activity? Uh, so we're definitely seeing uh, you know, slower volumes today in the, in the old business. Are you able to put a a percentage on that uh, on that slowdown would it be something in line with what we're seeing from a, a resale housing resale activity standpoint across Canada? I think it's I think it's less than that, but it's uh, it's meaningful. Okay, and uh, last one for me, just on the uh, portfolio insurance transaction, uh, is, is that primarily or is it entirely prime mortgages or? Um, uh, or are you including some of the Alt A book in that portfolio insurance transaction? And uh, looking forward, do you anticipate executing more of these types of transactions, or is this a one-time thing to bump capital? Well, it wasn't it's primarily about uh, making sure we had liquidity reserves, not so much capital. Capital is kind of a byproduct of that, frankly. You know, this all came out of the Alt book. This is all; these are all Alt mortgages that cut short. And may, it may be used as a tool again. Um, or, or may not. Uh, yeah, I would expect modest transactions, but this is probably 
the bigger one that we put through it just to make sure we were standing on really strong ground at the end of the quarter. Okay, thank you very much. Your next question comes from the line of Graham Writing of TD Securities. Please proceed with your question. Hi, uh, just on the underwriting side, have you have you tightened up on your loan to value appetite uh, in recent weeks or months, just given the uncertainty around the direction of house prices right now? Uh, yes, yeah, that was a fairly uh, quick reaction when we understood the economic consequences of what's happening. In, in a general sense, um, we're, we're about five percent less on LTV right across the board. And again, that really goes to you know price discovery in the housing markets. Um, clearly, if we're happy lending at a certain LTV at a certain point in time, when, when all of the indicators move to that softness in that future outlook for house prices, then a prudent thing to do is to, to dial back your LTVs. You're probably at around the same risk as you were before. Great, thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Jeff Kwan of RBC Capital Markets. Please proceed with your question. I just wanted to follow up on, on your response around, you know, activity Q2 to date. So were you saying that on the prime side, prime insured side of the business, um, that's going well and you're seeing transactions there, but on the uh, Alt-A side of the business, um, you're not seeing as much. I'm just trying to triangulate around just any sort of broader comments that you have around just housing and mortgage activity um, or are you talking more about specific parts of your book? Yeah, I, I just, <laughs> our prime business is, uh, a lot of it is relating to loans that are already seasoned uh, where we're providing competitive prices on renewal and bringing new loans in. So there's probably not, a certain, not an associated purchase transaction in those cases. And uh, don't forget we're a very small player in prime. In, in the overall scheme of a very large market, but we have a tremendous offering for the brokers in, in that part of the space. So we're seeing very large volumes there, uh, but as I say, I don't think it's associated with purchase activity. In the alt side of the business, you know, typically you know, more than half of that is related to purchase, underlying purchase transactions. So you can see that that would uh, slide down with, um, with, with the reduction in purchase activity. And I think it's fair to say that compared to some of our competitors, we're probably a little more um, cautious on credit in any event. I mean, most of the time, and you know, particularly in this kind of environment with this some lack of clarity around where where asset values really are, that we're probably um, we're probably giving up a bit of share to some more aggressive players in the market. Okay, thank you. And at this time, there are no further questions in queue. I turn the call back to Mr. Moore for any closing remarks. Uh, thank you, Amy. Um, in light of COVID-19, uh, we'll be hosting our annual meeting of shareholders in a virtual format tomorrow at 10 o'clock Toronto, 10 a.m. Toronto time. Uh, the press release we issued on April 8th and our management information circular have all, been, all the details you'll need to know to participate. We hope you will be able to join us, and goodbye for now. And this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.